Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Vince Gutierrez, movementthinker.org. Today we're going to talk about processes. So the first question is, what are you doing to make your company better? If you're employed, then it is your company. Take stock in your employer. If you can make your company more efficient, you deserve a raise, right? None of us should be getting a raise for time served. It's not prison. At least, it shouldn't seem like prison. Find your passion and follow it. If you don't have a passion for at least one part of your job, maybe it's time to reassess your career path. Once you find it, then make yourself valuable. (coughs) Process changes entails looking for changes we can make within our system to become more efficient. I'll give you an, an example, right? I'll give you a few examples. So so everywhere I go, I, I try to make the process more efficient. The company that I'm with right now, we've improved our intake. We've improved our referral process. We've improved our insurance verification. We've improved patient care and scheduling. We've improved discharge process. We've improved getting notes out to the physician. So what does this lead to? Improved bottom dollar, right? And we've generated a lot more money than what the previous team was generating prior to me taking over. If we believe no system is perfect and we can look at our own system, regardless of the profession or business, to ask ourselves, how can we be better? Then this will open up Pandora's box. For instance, I recently asked myself, what can we as a department be doing better? There were a lot of suggestions that were thrown out. We delved into one suggestion and it hit a brick wall when we broached a certain subject. Pushing further, it turned out that another department limited our department. Our conversation didn't go any further than this, but I would love to be in an upper level position to be able to bring the two departments together in order to demonstrate to the two departments how closely entwined they are with each other. This was just one suggestion of improvement that I discussed with my previous uh, supervisor. In my opinion, though, things will never change if they're never analyzed. Next, in the end, whether it's a clinical process or an operational one, anything you do that is part of the process must create value for your customer. Who is your customer in healthcare, right? When um, when I used to work for a previous hospital, um, the hospital is great. I got nothing bad to say about them. Payless Health Hospital is awesome. Um, they had care cards, right? And and they said that your customer was anybody that you interact with during the day. Now I don't know how much I exactly agree with that, but you know it is what it is, right? And so, who is our customer in healthcare? You know, the easy answer is the patient. But that answer is a little too easy and cookie cutter. You know, I, I would challenge that answer. They are one of our customers, maybe not the customer. When we look at it in terms of retail, who is the customer? Is it everyone that is in the store? In an ideal setting, the answer is yes. But realistically, our customer is the one that is spending money on our wares, you know, on what we're selling. In PT, the wares are PT. The customer, the one giving us the money, though is not always the patient 
as much as it's the insurance company. Now, obviously, if you work in a cash-based business, it's, you know, the customer, um, or I'll, I'll use another term, out-of-network business, because the cash-based and out-of-network, they, you know, they're closely intertwined also. Uh, the, obviously, the patient does pay some money, and so they are your customer. But we also have to cater to the insurance company when you're in, in-network, because they are your customer, right? So... How do we how do we best create value for our payers? We air quotes fix our patients, which some believe to be customers, right? This is not to demean the patient by any means, but we have to understand who feeds us in an in-network setting. If the patient had to pay out of pocket, then I would say that the patient is the customer only. And that would create a different set of values and a different set of processes to from entry to discharge. Right. Next quote, um, Michael Porter, Ph.D. in the New England Journal of Medicine, defines value as the health outcomes achieved per dollar spent. Value should always be defined around the customer, and in a well-functioning healthcare system, the creation of value for patients should determine the rewards for all other actors in the system. Value in healthcare is measured by the outcomes achieved, not by the volume of services delivered. Hello. All right, so there's a lot to unpack there, right? All right, what this is saying is that healthcare providers, therapists in this specific example, should get paid for doing a good job, meaning the patient gets better and avoids other costly procedures such as MRI, surgery, prolonged loss of work, you know, etc. Instead of getting paid for doing a lot of stuff to the patient. In my opinion, this means that if you have back pain, which is you know, the number one reason patients are coming into PT, then the therapist should get paid a certain amount for a specific outcome. If this outcome occurs in a short period of time, the therapist makes more money per visit overall. There is value, though, in identifying patients that will not benefit from therapy, and the therapist should also be rewarded for getting this patient to the proper practitioner to help alleviate the symptoms. Another way to say this is that the therapist should be punished by having to refund money to the payer if the patient needs to undergo a surgery that the therapist thought was avoidable. If we save the healthcare system a lot of money by avoiding surgery, we should see a percentage of the healthcare savings. On the flip side, if we stated that the patient would do well with therapy and the patient did not do well or needed surgery, then the money that we were paid should have to be paid back in a prorated fashion to help pay for that surgery. This is opening up a box, right? But uh, as I stated before, the cream will rise to the top always. And those that are good at their job will learn how to maximize income by becoming better at fixing those, fixing air quotes, right, alleviating symptoms that can be that can be reduced and referring those that can't be reduced onto someone who can redu- help reduce the patient's symptoms. Okay, again, there's a lot to unpack there. Our payment system is changing, and we know that. Okay, so we're seeing more of these capitated payment plans, meaning... Uh, also called bundled play- payment plans, right? We may know them more as bundled payment, where a patient goes in for a hip replacement. You know, the ACO, the uh, Accountable Care Organization, gets a certain chunk of money from Medicare. And we'll use a number that's been thrown around in previous discussions that I, I was in. So we'll use the number $22,000. Patient goes to hospital A for um, total knee replacement. The hospital is given $22,000 for this patient's care for the next 90 days. That $22,000 has to be used for the surgery, the anesthetist, 
nursing staff, any rehab that is done in the hospital, if that patient is referred to a skilled nursing facility, which costs a lot more. Oh, let's cover the cost here real quick. Tangents, right? Gotta love it. A uh, patient goes into hospital A and they stay for a day. Typical cost is about $1,000. Patient goes into skilled nursing facility B. Typical cost is $600 a day. Patient goes to home health C. Typical cost is $100 a day. If you are the payer, which one would you rather pay for? This is part of the reason why we're seeing numbers decline for length of stays in hospitals, length of stays in nursing facilities, and why we're going to see home health explode, why we've already seen home health explode, and why we're going to see it continue to explode over the course of time. Has to do with the, the bottom dollar. May not necessarily be for patient care, but it's how can the accountable care organization, Hospital A, save the most money in this plan of care, and you'll see why in a second. Hospital A is given a chunk of money, $22,000. Now, the hospital has a decision. First decision, how long do you keep the patient? You keep the patient as short as needed in order to keep the, get that patient stable and get them on to the next location. Next, where do you send that patient? Do you send them to the highest cost skilled nursing facility or to the lowest cost home health? What we're seeing is a lot of patients are being sent to the lowest cost home health, and if they're being sent to the skilled nursing facility, hospital A, because they're the one with the money, is following up with that skilled nursing facility on a very frequent basis trying to get that patient out of there into their their home so that way the hospital A doesn't have to spend as much money. Now, the patient has to go to outpatient, right, for physical therapy. In some cases, some physicians are saying, "Now nah, we can forego physical therapy, right, at least for the first, you know, four to six weeks. Um, it's not often, but some physicians are doing that. And and why would that be? Because there's money at stake, right? $22,000 has to be spread across a bunch of professions. Now let's go a little bit further into the, um, into the money pit here. If patient who had the knee replacement goes to a private practice facility that's not associated with the hospital, the hospital is, in the end, the hospital is paying for those visits and those visits will average let's just say in illinois i think it was a hundred dollars or 95 dollars based off of updoc media right so if they send them to a private practice they're paying a hundred dollars a visit if they send them to their own facility they're really only paying for the salary which is salary plus you know expenses for that person so it's salary plus we'll say 12 percent and so if the average therapist is making $41 an hour, they're paying $46. So they could send them to an outside agency and pay them $100 a visit, or they can keep them in and pay them, you know, pay $46 a visit. Again, it, it, it's dollars and cents. And so these agencies are becoming more aware of where the money is going. They're becoming more efficient at patient care, which I think is good in the long run, because in the end, they're trying to make a profit. That's no different from any other business. Now, that's on a capitated system, meaning they get a certain amount of money for a certain diagnosis, and they follow that patient throughout the entire episode of care, typically 90 days. The other thing that we see in healthcare is the fee-for-service model, right? And that is you pay each person for what they do to the patient. You've switched it up now. You've gone from trying to become the most efficient as possible, um, which... Again, some people who are, uh, you know, they, they are unscrupulous, they will cut corners to become efficient by maybe not giving the best care, 
we've got to look out for those bad players. But on the flip side, on the fee-for-service, we've got other people that will uh, over-treat, over-utilize care because they're getting paid for what they do to the patient, not getting paid that lump sum. And so there's no perfect system, but we know that the fee-for-service system is flawed. So like I said, the cream will rise to the top. Those who are really good at their job will have a job because they're saving the customer money in the long run. Okay, um, next next part here. Customers are seeking ways to reduce costs in response to healthcare reforms in, and in anticipation of the ever closer move away from fee-for-service and towards value-based care. Okay, awesome. So I didn't even realize that was coming next. This is all fine and dandy, but the companies need to inform the employees what is happening in the healthcare world. You know, there are many companies, one of my previous included, that have cut jobs, which has created a more stressful environment company-wide. We all here do more with less, but what should be said is that we are getting paid less, and we have to get creative in order to continue to stay solvent, right? And uh, that solvent word, we're hearing that from Medicare. You know, Medicare will not be solvent in 2025. I don't know if you've read that or not, but it's been out there. Anyway, Medicare Medicare's going to be around for a long time. They're just going to keep raising the prices. Um, we can't get rid of Medicare. So we have to keep Medicare around for now. Um, so they're just going to keep raising the prices. Medicare will not become insolvent. Anyway, uh, you heard me talk about fee-for-service. You get paid for what you do. Uh, and then there's that value-based, what they're calling capitated or they're calling bundle payment, which is where you get a lump sum at the beginning, and it's your job to take care of that patient and keep that patient healthy. All right, next quote. The patient is the customer. Value, therefore, depends on patient experience. Outcomes are greatly influenced by the amount of time the patient spends with actual caregivers. Okay, so the company that I used to work for, um, they did some things right and some things wrong. You know, we need to assess the patient experience. And Jerry Durham talks about that all the time. And so I highly recommend, you know, going out and listening to Jerry or Jerry doesn't pay me for anything. So um, this is purely an altruistic plug. I hope he does well. Um, absolutely love him. Had many conversations with Jerry. Moving on. Okay. This starts well before the patient is actually sitting in front of us for an evaluation. When the patient pulls into your business, is the entrance marked appropriately? Are you easy to find? Did your front desk staff ensure that the patient had directions to get to your clinic? Now that the patient has found it, how easy is it to park? Does the patient have to walk a long way in order to see the clinician? Is the waiting room busy? Is the waiting room cluttered? Is the waiting room clean? Is there coffee? I know it's a small one, but is there coffee? And I see some clinics won't do coffee because their insurance liability may not cover it, and I understand that. Uh, I had that conversation recently. Is there demographic-based reading material in the waiting room? Is the front desk staff warm and receptive? Does the front desk staff make an effort to remember the patient's name? When the patient registers for the first visit, are they simply handed paperwork to fill out, or does the receptionist offer to help? After registered, does the therapist come to the patient, or is the patient brought back to, to wait for the clinician? Is it a long walk to get to the clinic? Are there private rooms or at least a private area available to talk candidly with the patient without the patient feeling stifled due to outsiders? Are the beds clean? Is the room inviting to the patient? Does the clinician have all the tools needed to take care of the patient? This only describes like the first five minutes of a patient experience, and it can go on and on. You know, are companies still thinking about the patient experience or simply the bottom dollar? You know, these are the things that we have to, uh, to, to take into consideration. You know, I can say that my previous company did not ask me to violate any of my ethical standings, you know, and, and as long as the patient was in the clinic, 
I was with the patient and caring for the patient at all times. You know, the patient is vulnerable. That's why they're there. And I did my best and I continue to do my best to ensure that the patient understands that they are in a caring environment. This doesn't always mean that I can help or air quotes fix the patient, but the patient understands that they will learn, be cared for. And I believe, at least I try to make sure that that patient gets their money's worth for the session. Okay. Next quote. The goal is to minimize the amount of time any patient must wait to be seen once he or she has been called to make an appointment. Three days or less. Whew, man, welcome to post-COVID, right? I mean, I've seen hospital systems. I actually had some patients, you know, come in and tell me, I didn't know you were around, but I called the hospital and the hospital said I couldn't get in for three weeks. And so I found you on Google. Awesome. Other clinics are, you know, they're not getting patients in for two weeks. I will try to get the patient in the next day after I get the referral. And if I have to, I'll get the patient in the same day. You know, it's I've been known to stay late, come in early, see patients over lunch. But that's the owner's mentality, right? That's me as manager, boss, owner, not me as employee. So, you know, that's um, I think it's absurd to have to wait two weeks to get into physical therapy, especially if you're in pain. Um, yeah, it's just, you know, if, if, if you've got to wait two weeks, that therapist better be freaking awesome <laughs> because if you have to wait two weeks and you see a putz, <laughs> man, that's just like double whammy. That sucks. Um, I personally think it's uncalled for to have a wait list longer than three days. Um, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll get the patient in even if it means being uncomfortable for a short period of time. But uh, at my first job, we prided ourselves in getting the patient in the clinic within 24 hours. Obviously, if the patient wanted to be seen, you know, it, it meant sacrifice, but the patient was always the priority. And and I believe I've carried that through to where I'm at today. You know, get the patients in, get the patient seen, because you can't help the patient that doesn't walk through your door. Next quote, examining the department's intake procedure, its insurance verification process, and even the performance of individual PTs who might become more efficient by changing some of their protocols. As businesses, healthcare is not an exception, right? We could stand to become better. There are many avenues in which to improve. Um, you know, I've talked about the patient experience already. You know, could the therapist be better? Of course. Is the therapist doing something to become better? Yeah. <laughs> um, highly unlikely, you know, unfortunately. This is just my observation over, you know, the first 13 years of, of my career, you know, once we start getting paychecks and life happens, the giddiness that we entered the profession with starts to get pushed down by life, you know, and, and I think that that was stated in the, um, give me a second here, I don't have it at the top of my head, um, the Jensen article about uh, experts, maybe experts, no, the Jensen article about um, clinicians keeping up with the research and, you know, that article made two points, one, life other priorities come into play and then the second one was you know therapists not understanding how to do research boy i hope that's not the case anymore <laughs> you know research dr google you know just go right to google and, and you can find just about anything if you add nih to the end or if you go to google scholar there's so many different ways to get research nowadays but life is still happening right i mean i get it i've got you know married four kids house mortgage life you know we've all got life so but but try to make yourself better on a daily, if not a weekly basis, 
and it's unfortunate that many of the therapists that I've come in contact with over my career, CEUs and done. Check the box. CEUs are completed. I have no other reason to become better. And, and I think that's sad, you know. Anyway, lean. All about continuous improvement taking every functional area of your practice. All about continuous improvement taking every functional area of your practice, business, department, or organization, and continuously challenging everyone who is a part of it to do things better. Boy, I am consistently doing that to a fault, right? And, you know, I, I can remember when I worked at Payless and I had a conversation with... Uh, we'll call him XYZ manager at the time. And I just wanted to come in and blow up the system. <laughs> Those of you who've worked in a hospital setting, you know all the red tape that you have to go through in order to get a new pencil case, right? Or to get new pens in the department. Um, and I wanted to blow up systems. <laughs> Young and naive at the time. Um, anyway, so we'll say XYZ manager. Uh, said, Vince, what happens if this fails and and it doesn't work? And I said, simple. We just go back to the way that we were doing it, right? And, and it's like his eyes became saucers. Then why the heck would we make the change in the first place if we're just going to change back? And And this is no different than us in PT, right? It's test, intervention, retest, right? It's, this is the same concept. Why is it any different in business? You know, um, we know what our baselines are. Why don't we create a change? See if it changes any of our baselines. And if it does, awesome for the positive, right? If it does, awesome, then um, we stay with that change. If it doesn't or it makes things worse, well, then we go back to the way things were being done. But we should constantly be striving to do things a little bit differently. You know, I uh, there was a change that happened recently in the practice that I'm in. And... I'm an auditory learner, and so, like, my brain is flying a mile a minute, you know, and I'm writing everything out for the changes that I want to make to, um, the, there's a change that's happening in the practice. I was debating changes that I want to make in order to adjust to the change that's coming. And I wrote everything down, and nothing made sense to me. And so I had, you know, I step out, and I go have a conversation with one of the managers of the other department. And in the end, like, as I'm talking it out, I'm like, nope. That's a change that's going to create too much havoc for a very small return on that change. Um, and so in the end, I scrapped that change, even though like my I mean, I probably spent 15, 20 minutes out of that day figuring out if that change was going to figuring out the changes that I wanted to make and then determining if that change was going to be worth it. But we should always be uh, trying to do things better, you know, and, and, and it's scary because, you know, imagine having someone tell you that that you suck because that's essentially what I think the manager heard when I went in there and wanted to blow up systems, you know? <laughs> um, and, and, and I, I wasn't meaning for it to happen, but you know, when we're told that we have to change, maybe that's what we hear, you know, and, and we can all be challenged, but how we are challenged is what matters. And, and I think when I was young and naive, I was challenging in an alpha dog, you know, alpha male, um, mentality instead of a team, let's do better let's get better let's be able to do more for the patient mentality so story time you know and, and when i talk about let's do better let's be better i've lived it right so story time sam's club 8298 who's number one we are who's really number one 8298 Whew. all right anyway um recollecting 
<laughs> the uh, the year was about 2002, and a new GM came to the store, David Tanner. David was an awesome leader, and and David, I think, uh, I don't know exactly, I think he's out in Vegas now or somewhere out there. Um, you know, I was working in tires at the time, and there were about, you know, four of us in the department on this day. He asked me to do one job and to report back to him when I was done. No one else was asked to do anything more. So I was the only one working while everyone else waited for the next customer. You know, you know what it's like to wait for the next customer. You're just standing around shooting the shit. And um, so I'm working. I'm busting my ass. And, I, and there's three other people just sitting around shooting the shit. After the first job, he gave me another. And then another. And then another. Six hours later, I was like, dude, I'm like, what the hell's going on here? <laughs> <laughs> this is kind of bullshit. <laughs> and, uh, and and I went up to him and I questioned him. I'm like, dude, why aren't you telling them to do any work? Why am I the only one working for the past six hours? I'm busting my ass. I'm sweating. I'm soaked. You know, and these guys are just hanging out. Um, you know, why am I the only one working? You know, and, I, and so I confronted him on it, you know, and he said something along the lines of, I wanted to see how much I could push you before you pushed back. He was actually surprised that it took six hours. Um, he thought it would take much less. You know, I respected him for that, you know, because he told me his end game. And um, ending of the story, right, was I was named employee of the year that year. Um, I've lived it, right, when I say trying to do better, be better. Becoming employee of the year at Sam's Club was probably the worst thing that could have happened to me because where was there to go after that, right? They're telling you you've already reached the top of that store. So I quit. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if I recommend following my game plan in life, but, uh, you know, always trying to be better can create some, uh, some hurdles. I took a huge pay cut to go to the next job in which I learned a lot and, you know, it doesn't really matter. Tangent. So next it, it being lean allows you to find steps that are not providing value so you can eliminate them. You know, change is hard. You know, it's hard to change what's always been done. But if no one looks at what has always been done, then we'll never know if it can be done better or needs to be done at all. Next, you can you're continuously making changes, but they're easy to reverse. If you do something that doesn't lead to significant improvements, you go back to what you were doing before. You know, and and before I ever learned about, you know, lean management or, or Six Sigma, this was my mentality. You know, we can always go back to what we were doing before. And so it's it's pretty self-explanatory, but complacency is the killer of excellence, right? If you're comfortable and you're not trying to improve, you're going to be passed up by those who are. Uh, I would encourage any PT to see the journey in their setting from a patient's perspective. What would a patient think if they were coming in to see you? What would a patient think about your facility? What would a patient think about your demeanor? What would a patient think about your language? So look at it from the patient's perspective. Next, quiet the noise. That too often exists in the workplace environments. When we reduce that volume of noise, we free up our clinicians and frontline workers. This is interesting because this exact line was used in a previous email from a previous employer. Unfortunately, though, just saying it doesn't do much if the leadership doesn't follow the same line. Noise could be anything from rumors, complaints, internal bullying, anything that makes the front line dissatisfied. And, and I think that we need to work on what can we do better, not necessarily hearing all the stuff that's happening outside of us. 
So these quotes, um, the theme of this was taken from Hayhurst, Why Physical Therapists Are Embracing Lean Management. Uh, that was in PT in Motion in December 2015, January 2016. So thanks for listening. If you guys have any comments, you know, feel free to leave them in the, you know, send them to me on Anchor or find me on Facebook, movementthinker.org. You can find me, Vince Gutierrez, in vivo PT. I'm all over the place. Just Google me, Vince Gutierrez. PT, not the guy from California. And um, yeah, send me your comments.